0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, UPC.org. Hear the word of the Lord from Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ants, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, it prepares its food in the summer and gathers its sustenance in the harvest. How long will you lie there, lazy bones? When will you rise up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want, like an armed warrior. The word of the Lord. You know, I don't know which is a bigger disappointment when you walk into University Presbyterian Church and find out there's a guest preacher or a guest organist. They're both bad, and uh, <coughs> I'm as disappointed as you are about one of those. But, <laughs> it, but I will say this. I am so honored to be with you. I love this church. Everybody knows I love this church. It's always been just a favorite place for Bonnie and me. Um, I've been involved in different kinds of ways, and it's just a privilege to be here. And the relationship between University Presbyterian Church and Whitworth has been amazing. You have sent us hundreds of students, and many of our alumni have been with you as interns. And of course, our most famous and highly esteemed alum, Tim Snow, you already have. So, Also, I serve on the board of Princeton Seminary, and I was there this week. Do you know that... UPC has had as many as 18 of its people studying at Princeton at one time. It's amazing. So, of course, I got to see Earl, which is always a treat. And then the big treat was our new our new trustee alum, Renee Sundberg, preached in chapel. And it was great. Yeah, really. It was so good. Probably the best sermon I'll hear this week. And for sure it is. So... So, I'm again, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. When I got an email from Nancy inviting me to preach, I was really pumped. At least I was pumped until I opened the attachment. Go to the ants, you sluggard. Seriously? And on Wednesday, just this past Wednesday, I got an email from my good friend George Henman. He told me how happy he was to have me preaching. No kidding. Although he did preach about leeches, so. (laughs) Well, when I got this from Nancy, I thought about a conversation I had in the summer of 1982. I was speaking at a staff conference for a young ministry called Prison Fellowship. The day before the conference started, the ministry's founder, Chuck Colson, had been on Good Morning America with David Hartman. Apparently, this was a 10-year anniversary of something related to the Watergate scandal. So they had Chuck on there. So after the conference, Chuck and I were riding to the airport, and I said to him, uh, nice job on Good Morning America, Chuck, but I noticed you pretty much ignored David Hartman's questions. And Chuck goes, yeah, I did. <laughs> And he says, one Saturday night, President Nixon asked me what I was going to talk about the next morning on Good Morning America, I mean on Meet the Press. Well, I said, Mr. President, it just depends what they ask me. And Nixon said, what difference does that make? You tell them whatever you want. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I gave that some thought this morning. (laughs) I was thinking... Maybe I could begin with, <clears throat> who am I to consider the ways of ants? Wouldn't you like to hear about Jesus? <clears throat> Go to the ant, you sluggard. By the way, sluggard is a more accurate translation than lazybones in the RSV, so that's the one I'll use. Now, the context of this passage we find in Proverbs 6.1. A father, possibly Solomon, is giving advice to his son. Apparently, this father is not too worried about his son's self-esteem because he calls him a sluggard, twice. Not only that, he presents ants as aspirational for his son. Well, I think this father and the ants have three things to say to us. First, we are made to work. Second, there are no holier-than-thou jobs. And third, meaning comes more from what we bring to work Than what we get from work. The first message is pretty clear. The father is telling his son to get to work. Work like the ants. Work is basic. Look at the ants. They just work. We find commentary on work throughout scripture. There are many verses. And I thought about giving you some of them. But they're everywhere in scripture. Including the ten commandments. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a sabbath to the Lord your God. Most of us think of this commandment in terms of the importance of keeping the Sabbath, but it also commands us to work. I think that's the part the father was focusing on. His son already seemed to have the Sabbath part down. (laughs) Well, I don't think laziness is a huge problem at UPC. We are probably guilty of working too much rather than too little. And when we get too wrapped up in our jobs, bad things happen. We run the we run the risk of letting our work define us. And we also find ourselves defining others by their jobs. When people say, what do you do? That's a pretty general question. But you don't say, what do you mean? What do I do? You know what they mean. And you know your answer will affect their opinion of you. We have a daughter who's a Presbyterian, ordained Presbyterian minister with three preschool kids. If she answers, What do you do? with, I'm a pastor, people will think one thing. But if she answers that, What do you do? question with, I'm a wiper, I wipe mouths, I wipe noses, I wipe everything that needs it, <clears throat> they're going to think of her in a different kind of way. It's ridiculous to let what we do for a living define us. The work and the jobs in our lives go so far beyond our occupations. For example, if you are a spouse who is able to stay home with your kids, to say you don't have a job is absurd. Your job is probably harder and certainly more important than the job you'd be doing to make money. So anyway, the father tells his son, look at the aunt. He It eats because it works. If you don't work, You get poverty. Now, if I'm his son, I'm going to shoot back and say, Oh, Dad, that's what ants do. That's the way God made ants. Exactly. It's also how God made us. We read in Genesis 2.15, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Before sin entered into the world, work entered into the world. Work was not a punishment for Adam's fall. The first thing God did with Adam is make him a custodian in the garden. The message here for all of us is that we are made to work. It is a sacred instinct created in ants and created in people. When we don't work, life doesn't work. That's what the Proverbs 6 father is telling his son. That's why you heard Earl Palmer say, retirement is not a biblical concept. And it's why those of you who have retired keep on working in all kinds of ways. It is also why the church has both an opportunity and a duty to help those without jobs find jobs. Did you see in the New York Times this morning this article about the fear people feel when they get close to the retirement age and they don't know if they can make it, if, if they can't somehow keep their job? When we help people find jobs, we are helping them be what they were made to be and do what God made them to do. So if work is a God-given impulse, shouldn't we expect our jobs to be meaningful and fulfilling? Well yes and no. Yes you should expect to find meaning in your work, and no, you should not necessarily expect your job to be meaningful. It will take me a little bit to explain that. Some of you have jobs that are very fulfilling. My job was that way most of the time. But neither Proverbs 6 nor Genesis 2 says anything about jobs offering meaning and satisfaction. The main message from the ants and from the Garden of Eden is about doing the job, meaningful or not. I remember interviewing a candidate for the director of human resources at Whitworth. She said to me, what is your vision for HR at Whitworth? I replied, I want our people to love coming to work every day. I really do. But some days might not be so great. So we're going to pay them to come to work. (laughs) Yeah, that's why people get paid for working. That's why they call it work. So if we don't take anything else from this passage... It's a good reminder that work is work, and you have to do it. So if work is hard and work is work, how do we get meaning in our work? Where does that come from? God made both people and ants to do work, but God has told people how to do work. In fact, God has more to say about how we work than how much we make or what we do for a job. It is how we work where we find meaning. For our work to be fulfilling, meaningful, and for us to work the way God wants us to do it, our work must be an expression of our faith in Jesus Christ. Virtually all of the instruction in the New Testament can be summarized in what Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything as unto the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. We cannot allow our work and our faith to be separate. In the very early church, faith was integrated into every nook and cranny of the church's lives. But for around the 4th century, the church began to see work as separate from faith. The writings of Eusebius talk about two ways of life. The holy life, the life of separation and secular And sacrifice. And also, then, the secular life of marriage, work, and owning property. He called this secular life a secondary grade of piety. So it was this kind of thinking that led to the radical separation of the sacred from the secular in the establishment of the monastic order. What happened is holiness as a way of life. Became the duty only of those who took the monastic vows. So if you were called to holiness, you were called away from your family, away from your job, away from your property. Fortunately, in the 16th century, that thinking changed. When the Protestant Reformation argued for the priesthood of the believer, it was arguing that holiness as a vocation, as a calling, is for all of us, because we're all priests. <clears throat> Alistair McGrath writes, when, Whereas monastic spirituality regarded vocation as a calling out of the world, Luther and Calvin regard, regarded vocation as a calling into the everyday world. So work was seen as an activity by which Christians could deepen their faith and their commitment to God. So Luther and Calvin and the other reformers helped defeat this two-tiered concept of vocation that connected piety, grades of piety, to certain kinds of jobs. But now 500 years later, I'm afraid this two-tiered hierarchy of piety connected to jobs is making a comeback. In high school, vocation is what you got if you didn't take college prep courses. But in church history, vocation has always meant voc, voice, vocation, God's call in our lives. And one of the ways that God calls us, that God gives us vocation, is through our gifts and our abilities and our interests and our passions. And we can do some things better than others. No matter how many times your coach told you, you can do anything if you work hard enough, you can't. There's a lot of things you can't do. Deal with it. (laughs) So we have urged our members in the church and our students at our Christian colleges to enter into fields that tap into the gifts that God has given them, and that's good. But what is not good is the idea that God wants all Christians to be in jobs that are perfectly suited for their interests, abilities, and passions. We love to quote Arthur Chickering and Frederick Beekner. Chickering says, We discover our vocation by discovering what we love to do, what energizes and fulfills us, what actualizes all our potential for excellence. Buechner defines vocation famously, that special place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep needs. I love these definitions. I lived these definitions, but they do not apply to the ants in Proverbs 6, and they do not apply to most Christians. Two important men in my life make the point. My father was the son of a minister. After college, he too became a minister and landed in a small church in upstate New York. Dad's call to congregational ministry hit the vocational target, but not exactly the bullseye. He and my mother had hoped to become missionaries in Brazil, but World War II came along And they were kept from doing that. My dad was also an airplane nut, loved aviation, and flew in the Civil Air Patrol. In his memoirs, he tells of the night he was drying the dishes, and his two passions began to come together in a vision for training missionary pilots. He stayed up all night writing down his idea. And that idea became the missionary aviation training program at Moody Bible Institute. He led that program for 29 years. And over half the missionary pilots that have ever climbed into a cockpit can trace their training back to a country preacher who found that special place where his deep gladness met the world's deep needs. My father was the poster child for the way we so often now think about vocation. My father-in-law, however, did not have such a fortunate birth. He was the illegitimate son of a homeless woman he went straight from the womb to the orphanage. A year later, he was adopted by a kindly couple who raised him. When he finished the eighth grade, his dad put him to work on the farm so he was unable to go to high school. Eventually, he married a lovely woman, became a maintenance man, and raised four children, including the lovely Bonnie Robinson, who is here today. On weekdays, Bonnie's dad got up, went to work, came home tired. On Saturdays, he fixed lawnmowers and furnaces for his friends. On Sundays, he went to church, ate pot roast, read the paper, dozed off, and went back to the evening service. That was his life, and it was a good life. Fifty weeks of the year. Had you asked Robert Earl Van Land if his vocation was one in which his deep gladness met the world's deep needs, He would have looked at you as if you were from Mars. He was a very quiet man, so I'll answer for him. The answer is yes. He liked fixing stuff. That's what he did. He was thankful for his job. After he died, the funeral director said he'd never seen so many people come to a visitation. There were people like my father-in-law, folks who came to pay their respects to a good man who went to church provided for his family, and fixed their lawnmowers. Thousands of us have been totally inspired by people like my father and by people like Skip and Sid Lee, who heard God's call to this neighborhood. They said yes to the passions and abilities God gave them. I find them heroic, and I find them blessed. But can they claim a higher calling than my father in law And what about the millions upon millions of Christians around the world whose only vocation is to find food and shelter for their families? What about Christians who are just fighting to survive? What about the Christians in this church and in this sanctuary who are working for minimum wage? For these Christians, their deep gladness is simply taking care of themselves and their families. And there is holiness in that. At a recent conference in Portland, one of the featured speakers was talking about vocation as God's desire for us to find our spiritual sweet spot, follow our passions, and step out on faith. So I asked him, doesn't that work better for Western, upper-middle-class Christians who enjoy the luxury of choice? He agreed that it does. We cannot let this idealized understanding of vocation allow us to look at my father-in-law or a billion Christians in the world in a way that Eusebius looked at them as second-class Christians doing second-class work. For many of these folks, their passion and deep gladness is more about Christ than the work they do. And when we see our jobs through the lens of faith, we can find holy joy in all kinds of work, mundane work, and even unpleasant work, because we do it as unto the Lord. The most important message in Proverbs 6 for most of us here today is, that, is not that we should work. We know that. You're already working too much. The most important message is what we should bring to work. The father tells his boy, ants don't need a ruler or commander to get them to work. Their motivation comes from within, and so must ours. Could it be that job satisfaction is more about what we bring to our jobs than what we get from our jobs? The Apostle Paul says that when we live by the Spirit, we will bear the fruits of the Spirit at home, at play, and at work. This is why it's so dangerous for us to separate our faith life from our work life. If we can check our faith at the door when we get to the office, then it becomes our job's job to give us love, joy, peace, gentleness. Well, some jobs just don't do that. And no job does that all the time. When I was a janitor in an elementary school, cleaning bathrooms, I didn't get any of the fruits of the Spirit especially when I clean the boys' bathroom. They are universally bad shots. In in Luke 5, Jesus makes a fascinating connection between faith and work. When Jesus called Peter, James, and John and the others to follow him, he went to their workplace, he did a work-related miracle, and he used a work-related metaphor. And you probably know the story. Jesus goes down to the water... The disciples had gotten shut out after fishing all night. So he gives them their best catch ever, and then he says, Follow me, and you will continue to fish. But from now on, you will fish for lives. I wonder if Jesus could do that with us. I wonder if Jesus could meet us where we work. I wonder if the fruits of Christ's Holy Spirit could give us our best day of work. I wonder if the fruits of the Spirit in our lives could draw others to the one we follow. I wonder what would happen if we did all of our work all the time as unto the Lord. I need to say just one more thing before I close. I realize this is easy for me to say. I know there are people here today who are trapped in very unhealthy job situations, and it is not their fault. Now, I believe fully that what we bring to work is most important, but there are some jobs that are just plain toxic. And if you are in one of those jobs, please do not allow anything I've said in this sermon to shame you. I pray that there will be change at your workplace. Thank you. This has been great to be here today. Thank you, George, wherever you are, for this wonderful text. <laughs> but I do think we should consider the ants. They just go to work. And we should consider Luther and Calvin, the Apostle Paul. They had this radical idea that everything we do, should we, we should do as unto the Lord. Everything, including our work. When I was president of Manchester College, I was giving a campus tour to the executive director of this big national organization of colleges and universities. As we were walking, he spotted a building and said, wow, that's an impressive building. I replied, it's not as impressive as the guy who takes care of it. Shortly after we entered the building, my guy shows up. I said, J.P. Freeman, this is Alan Spleet. He's head of the Council of Independent Colleges. That's all it took. Welcome, Mr. Spleet. I hope you know Manchester College is the greatest place in the world, and I am so blessed to be able to work here doing this job. I couldn't have scripted it any better. On the weekends, J.P. pastored a little church in town. J.P. was a recovering everything. If you could be addicted to it, he had been addicted to it. And he was recovering. In JP's little church, if you went on a Sunday morning, you'd be able to hear how Christ changes everything. And you always did. And on Monday morning, when JP showed up for work, if you walked into his building, you would be able to see how Christ changes everything. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Gracious God, may everything we do, including our work, be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio, or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call two zero six five two four seven three zero one extension 117.